Hello, everyone. I'm Oscar, um, live from Hong Kong. Uh, we have two other speakers. Actually, one is a co-host, that's Richard, uh, who you may know. And on the other side, we have uh, Mark Lebosque. Mark, how are you doing today? Oscar, doing really well. Uh, great to be part of this, uh, this experience. Thanks for having me. Well, you don't know yet what the experience is. <laughs> uh, look, I've experienced enough with you two guys to know that this will be this will go into places that I didn't expect it to go into and, and maybe some that I did. So I'm look, looking forward to it. Excellent. So I'll start with the first question. Uh, first of all, maybe just do a quick introduction of yourself and I'll start with the first question after that. Okay, so just a quick introduction. Mark Labusk, I'm based in, in Melbourne in Australia, uh, currently working out of another state, just um, experimenting with some, some things I've learned over COVID time about remote and virtual working. Uh, 25 years in the corporate space uh, and left there around six years ago to set up my own leadership development business, and um, which really focuses in on um, bringing more of a human element into the workplace. Nice. So what exactly, you actually explained it a little bit, so please expand on what you exactly do. I actually thought I'd get away with that being the answer to the question of what I do, because I think one of the hardest questions I ever get asked is, what do you do? And I think I'm still grappling with that at the moment. What, what's, what's <laughs> is, the that, is that an though? answer in itself, Mark? <laughs> I'm grappling with it and you're not going to go any further? <laughs> uh, I think... I, I think what it is, Richard, is, a, is my first attempt at, avo at avoiding a question that I struggle with a bit today. So what, what do I do? Um, look, if I sum it up, it's really to, to help organisations to, I think, to combine our traditional focus on the technical elements of our work, our process work, the, the, the education and those things that, that we've professional development we've done and and to combine that with what i call the human elements which which is more about getting back to what people will call the soft skills which i call the human skills is is vulnerability compassion empathy um i'm going to talk about things there too like about being courageous um so getting people to understand that i actually think we leave some things behind when we only focus on one. But I also believe this very strongly that we need to combine them. It's not throwing out the old way and bringing this new human element in. So what I'm trying to do is to help people understand the importance of and the power in creating business success and getting the most out of your people by allowing them to turn up as human beings and also use all of those other things they've learned, I guess, through our traditional systems in the workplace. I think there are, there are two things that make this interesting, Mark, or the way, that, the way you just defined it. So one, one is the, the idea you're grappling with what you do in the first place. I and mean, I think that's quite interesting rather than you can just say, oh, I do this. It's, so, so it's something that's quite emergent and, and, and something you're trying to work out in, in practice. And, and the second is when you talk about being human, um, there's a gap there. You, you're sort of saying this is really hard to be human. This is not a, a, a fuzzy, positivistic kind of, oh, just be fluffy. That there's, there's some, some darkness behind that as well. Uh, is, is that true? I mean, is there, is there a darkness that sits behind this be more vulnerable that, that you're probing into? I, I think there's a darkness. Let me go back to that first bit uh, around what do you do? And 
the easy way that, that I could answer that uh, was really based around what I'm qualified to do. So, you know, I'm, I'm a qualified school teacher. So I could say, when you say, what do you do? I'm a school teacher. But I guess with the work I do today, it's not as easy to say I'm a, I'm a humanist. And they're like, well, what the hell does that mean? Um, so it's not like I've got a, a title or some sort of label I can associate myself a profession. So that what I think that's why I grapple with this this work. And, and what usually happens is once people come in and they experience the work, they understand what I do, but I just don't articulate it well. Your second question in regard to the dark side of this, I think there's a I think there's some light starting to show. Uh, in, in the darkness. I think there's still darkness there. And I think the darkness and the dark side of this is really something that people fear about what is potentially the risk to me if I started to turn up and displayed things like vulnerability and compassion and these types of things where I've usually been rewarded for my proficiency in the efficiencies of productivity, the things that I've learned at university, the, the, the profession that I'm in, my expertise that I bring to that. Um, is there a chance if I start to bring the other one in that I start to lose, I guess, the things that have made me successful in, in my career? And I think about that with myself as, a, as someone who is an operational manager in an organisation and, and, you know, knew he had to take cost out and create efficiencies was very easy to see to then become a sales director to hit numbers. And that was, I can say that's easy and that's sort of, people can see that, but not until I started to take risks and, and display some vulnerability and some compassion, some empathy for my people, did I actually see the true Mark LeBuck turn up and not only that, some amazing results. So, but I was also fearful, Richard. So it's a great question. I was fearful of trying some new things and experimenting to see what might happen. And even to today, I can say it, I, I was made redundant at my last organisation, um, having got great results. And, and part of that, I think, would be that the dark side got hold of me again because of the way I'd turned out. Going back, Richard, to, to the, the, the dark side, right? Like... It's like a bit like Star Wars here, but um, the, the dark side of being human, right? So why, why do you th think people are so fearful of being themselves in a way? We are fearful of being, so I'm going to use myself as an example here, and I think about um, my time in, in the corporate environment, 25 years of being in there. And I, I would say only really for two of those years was I at the point where I just thought, well, I, I'm going to just do this and, and step up, still have a little bit of fear, but very minimal fear. But if I go back before that, I was fearful because what I was rewarded for, what I got, um, I guess, marked on, and, and this is, I think, something that comes right from the education system all the way through our lives is, you get marked on your results, um, whether they be in the KPIs. And I think these things are really important. Um, so if I'm going to start to invest some of my energy into bringing that human element in, which means that I, I think I'll lose some of that other, that other magic that the organisation is looking for, and I'm looking forward to, to progress and 
to, to get the bigger office and the, 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 the fatter paycheck, um, I've got to be, I've got to have some fear that what if I then start to lose my identity as, for instance, as a young manager, I'm, I'm, you know, 30 years ago, they used to call me the baby faced assassin because they would send me in to do jobs. I'd build, I'd, I'd build what I thought was trust very quickly with people. And then I would stab them in the back and I would, make them redundant or cut their hours or do whatever I did. And that was rewarded in my eyes. And that's how I progressed further into my career. I guess when you become older and you become less fearful of what might happen to you. And I think there's something in that too, about as we get more mature, I didn't care so much, even though I still had mortgages to pay and whatnot and kids going to school, I didn't care as much that I didn't fear it as much anymore because I actually started to think that that's the way that, I should behave in order to encourage my people to behave like that and potentially an organisation. So I've lost the fear. And some people will say that's been a bit of a maverick and been a bit crazy, and but I've certainly lost that fear for that now. So, so I, mean, I, I'm assuming that there was, there was sort of a, a period of time where this, this started to happen to you, where you went from the baby-faced assassin to somebody who was deeper and more complex and trying to make differences in, a, in again, a more complex, holistic way. So to an extent, that, that's an holistic awakening or sort of a spiritual awakening. You were sort of going, this, this, this version of me is not enough and I need to move into a version of me that is. So to go back to your inability to define what you do, is that really what you do? Is people who are struggling with the, the version of them that's not enough, you're probing that and saying, look, okay, how do we create a version of you that not only is enough, but creates massive value across a holistic part of the organisational experience? Um, I actually need to pick this up later on and take that back and just steal what you said then, Richard, because that's what I do. It's... It's interesting. My work is is primarily worked around, I guess, the concept of self. I'm a, I'm a very, very strong believer in. I think the I think we've in the leadership development space we've focused not enough on self. We're focused more to be, get managers and leaders to become proficient at motivating people, communicating, doing all of these sorts of things, and less time on. Let's let's um, Oscar to your point. Let's go back into the place of fear about ourselves. What do we know about ourselves? What is it that we're prepared to look at that we don't like about ourselves? And as, as, as Marty Linsky, and I, I use the adaptive leadership framework, he talks about what's your part in the mess. And I think one of the things I do really well today is I help people to go to a place where they're prepared to uncover their part in the mess, which is, which is holding the mirror up to them. And once they do that work, which I think is really the hardest work of, of all, then they're ready to start to look outward. So I think that's a nice summation what you said, Richard. I maybe used a few more maybe Linsky-isms around it, but um, I do play in that space. I think 65 to 70% of my work would be helping people look back at themselves rather than looking outwards. Fantastic. Thanks, Mark. I mean, I think it's really interesting. Anyone who struggles to, to define what they do is far more interesting than someone can say, who just says, oh, I do this. So that, that's fabulous. But it's so it's taken us a while to answer our first that first question, which is a, with a bunch of informal questions in the, in the mix that we weren't expecting. So I'll, I'll move over back to Oscar and, and let him try and try and move this forward at a pace that uh, that's useful. 
Well, so the the other thing, of course, I, I looked at your website, right? And you, you there's a really strong focus of of being human there. Um, and I, I, the reason why I'm asking that question is, okay, what what do you think is missing in in the current environment that in terms of leadership? Because there's a reason why you do things slightly different. Let's talk. Let, let me first say, what, rather than what's missing, what is actually there is the thing I'm going to say is organisations are made up of human beings. So we've got we've got the material there that we need to work with, which is our human hardwiring. What's missing is, oh, I think there's a lot of things that are missing. Let me let me start with us embracing what it is to be human. And, you know, we're a social, we're a social creature, we're a social species. So, you know, the, the two fundamentals that I think are missing and, and, and actually I'm going to say this, but I shouldn't, and people will see this as a bit flowery. I, I actually wonder why I say that, maybe to, maybe to defend it or to justify it, but a deeper sense of connection with, with the people that we're working with um, at any level in the organisation, I think that's missing. Is is And that is taking the time to build that connection. And if I think about, I've known you gents now for coming up to, well, for 12 months. And, you know, my my, my level of connection with you now and understanding you more as humans is, is much more deeper than what it was way back before. And then the second part for me, and I think this is a crucial one in, in organisational life is, is a strong sense of our belonging to an organisation. Now, I'm going to put that into two, two parts here. And then I really believe this is a, a simple conversation a manager or a leader can have with the people. It's, it's around what I call relevance and contribution. So if you imagine this, I used to work in an organisation of 30,000 people. What was missing, I think, was my ability to allow one individual, one human being in that organisation to understand why they were relevant and how they contributed as an individual into their team, into their department and into their organization's strategic intent. And so I think they're two things that, and people will say, well, connection and belonging, how do you measure them and all that sort of stuff. It's not about measuring them. It's actually about embracing them and, and just putting those simple questions out there and having those conversations with people. Um, for instance, you know, if I was working with you two, um, for Richard, to, to have got to know you for the last 12 months, I'd be thinking that, you know, you, you, the, the contribution that you make, and I, and I say this with the greatest of respect, is your fierce um, ability to agitate. And, and we need that because we don't want everyone thinking the same. So your contribution would be as the agitator in, in, in the team to move us forward when we're getting stuck. Um, and... Why is that relevant is because just what I said is that we, we can get ourselves caught in groupthink and we can get stuck. So me saying that to you rather than the, you contribute by driving results, I hope that gives you a sense more of how you belong into a, to a team. And, and Oscar, for you, um, you know, when I think about what you've created, uh, we've both created, but Oscar has sort of more of the, I'm going to call it the administrational function. One of the things that, uh, that, that, you contribute, I think, is a is a sense of, I guess, there's some direction. I think you bring a real sense of direction uh, to what goes on with what your organisation and what you two are looking to do here. Um, and the relevance around that is, is 
I like the I like the chaos that comes with it, but at times we're going to need someone to keep us on track, and I think I think you do that really well. So they would be conversations I would have with you, rather than just say, I think you're a good administrator. Does, I hope that does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 the idea that I'm an agitator, I mean, I, I define myself, as you know, as an ironist. And, and mm. that's, the, that's the trickster character or the, the jester character, the one, the one that does speak up and say what needs to be said, but in a way that hopefully doesn't get their head cut off. Uh, so I can see that, you know, if, you, if you're actually defining roles like that and within the organisation, you're, you're helping the person be able to speak up and, and, and people rec recognise that person's role as being useful rather than the, the troublemaker that, that is negative all the time. And I think that that in itself is vital. Um, and, and, and as you say, Oscar is sort of a, a, a director administrator, the guy with, with the vision that pushes everyone forward. You also need to know that archetype exists in the team and, and, and work out that, that that's the person that, that's the, the vision that you're following and the journey that you're on. So that, that's really, really interesting. So I also us... think just just very quickly, I also mm. think Oscar at times plays a really good role where it's like he throws. I've been in some work groups with him and he'll throw mm. in a just a really, really. I think in times it's it's a, it's a comment that agitates people. That I see people's body language change, and and that's the other thing I'd say with this is whilst I might say this is where I'd see you, also helping people to realise they've got other skills and strengths that they bring as well. So don't lose that, Oscar. I think that's good. So before I before I throw it back to Oscar because he's yeah, I agree it's it's good and um. I just wanted to add a sort of a slightly deeper question, Mark, in, in the way sure. that you frame that. So you said that you're, yeah, you're talking about connection and, and belonging. So I just wonder if you can frame it sort of you're, you're, you're dealing with the, the failure or the decay of, of organisational culture as a way that does that. So where historically, just oh, here's the culture and everybody belongs and connects because of the culture. But, but it's, it seems to be decaying and you're probing that decay. Is, is that a fair way to define what you do? Absolutely. Um, you know, I like what, how you just framed that up. It's like, here's how we are and off and off we go. And, you know, you're either fit in or something else happens along the way. You don't quite fit in. I guess I am pushing at the edges of this is the way you are and, and this is, and you want to be successful. So again, getting people to look back, not just at what they call the culture. I'm going to say the culture comes from, looking at themselves as well. So I'm going to continue to push at them. And I'll say what, call it, I guess, label what I call, make them comfortably uncomfortable with this idea that what you've got today is not going to get you to where you want to be tomorrow. Thanks, Mark. The, um, the other part I liked actually, so we kind of discussed about the, the current state uh, of companies um, and, and what you do. But I'm also really curious about how you actually help organizations and individuals. So what is your approach or do you have a specific method behind this? Okay, there's, there's, there's a few different strings to the bow here. Um, what I tend to find with my work is, first of all, the clients who, who usually seek me out, have, have potential clients who, who seek me out, are ones who have you talked about that decay Richard like the teeth are rotten like the, 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 the they're to the point where the teeth should be extracted type thing that's sort of where they're at so 
I tend not to be approached by people who are a little bit curious about what's going on. They're a bit more like we, we've had two or three years in a row of not great results around culture engagement. Our business results aren't where they need to be. So tend to attract that, that, type, of, that type of client. Um, and I often wonder why that is. I think it's because my approach to the conversations with them, initially the conversations and being a bit different is that I'll be very upfront and say to them, I actually need to work out whether or not I want to work with you rather than whether you want to work with me. And, and, and I'm looking for some signs and some signals and some, some of the body language that goes on and, and, and the words that they're using to try and work this out is, is this another compliance-based activity that they're undertaking to tick a box to, to help them get to, I guess, placate some strategy that's come from the board or whatever it might be or from, from the top? Or are they really, really serious about doing the work on themselves at the highest level in order to, to allow that to flow down through the organisation? So... Um, really, the first meeting, I call it a tire-kicking meeting, and there's a lot and lots of questions. And I'll be I'll be upfront with them and say I actually don't think you're ready. I, don't, I actually don't get a sense that you're ready yet for what you're going to experience because here's some examples of what can happen in the room. Um, I'm going to call things out that that you won't call out today, and you'll be uncomfortable, and then you, you know things can start to fall apart pretty quickly. So if they come to work with me, it's usually because they've gone past a level of decay that is, is going to be treatable with a two-day, three-day situation. It's going to take, and I say this, the game of human is a long game. It's going to take them, in essence, a minimum of 12 to 18 months. And some of my clients were working together for, for three years. So um, that's sort of the work I do. How does it work? There's... There's interventions in the room within intact teams. There's interventions in the room across functions. There's one-to-one -one coaching. Um, there's, a, there's a little program I run, which is very centered on the work of self, which goes for two days called the human manager experience, where they literally get broken down and built back up again and then given some practical things to use. So, but, but a lot of it is centering around back to the work of self. So, um, and that's, that's hard work to do for people who usually want you to go in there and give them the seven steps to this and then walk away. So you're basically, they've got to be ready to get into the mud pit and wrestle with pigs. Um, otherwise you're, you're not going to go there. Absolutely. And look, and, and when I, and, and I think the other part that's important about that is to understand that we are getting into the mud pit to wrestle, but with good intention, the, the intention being that we'll become better human beings for it will become more effective as, as leaders. And ultimately, our organisation, our clients, our customer experience will be better and our financial results and our sustainability will be better. So um, it's really important to, ex to explain that bit around intention because uh, I do call something what I do provoking with purpose and people have a problem with the word provoking or provocation, but I do say to them, you must understand, I will provoke you, but I'll do it with what I think is good intention and purpose in order to help you get out of the mud pit and back into, uh, onto some, um, you know, firm ground.
So I have a, an extra question here related to, so when I, when I teach uh, sort of at universities, et cetera, and, and the leadership stuff I do there, uh, my best students nearly always hit a crisis point. So, you know, there's so much stuff coming at them from all kinds of angles and they'll, they'll, they'll call me up or they'll write me an email saying, help, I've just, there's just too much and I can't cope with all this information. And then that's the moment, and you sort of said, you know, you break them down and put them back together again. That's the moment I, I know that they, in a good sense, have been have broken and they're ready to build and, and, and progress beyond the level which they thought they were capable. So are you doing that both for leaders and organisations? Are, are you breaking them down so that they can thrive beyond where they ever thought they were capable of thriving? I'd like to think that because big as I talk about the work starting itself, you know, when someone comes in and says we need to fix our organisation, I'll say that the organisation is made up of multiple individuals. So we actually need to start at that level. And, and, and the best place to start is at the top of the organisation. Although that hasn't always been my belief. I, I, when I was, I guess, I think more of Maverick Mark back doing my experiments in corporate, I, I thought that insurgency through the middle could really drive this. I'd like to think there's still some of that that can, but, but, but the better results Richard Nos could come from when you drive it at the top but it is at an individual level. So, you know, I use, um, I use Keegan and Lay's um, immunity to change framework as a, as a really powerful tool for, for self-improvement. You, you start using that tool in a room of the, the top end of the, the C-suite and they actually start to get to hear about each other's behaviours, um, vulnerabilities and things like that. It does two things. One, it helps that person at an individual level to understand themselves and get into that sort of broken piece to come out of it. But more powerfully, I think, and this is where it starts to help the organisation, it allows people, peers, colleagues to see their, I guess, their peers in the room in a, in a very, very different way. And, and that's, I think, what starts to help build understanding of each other, build that humanity and and ultimately become a more, I think, functional team. I actually have a question for you both, uh, Richard and Mark. The, uh, Mark, based on what you just said, so you, your starting point is, or your, the way you articulate it is that you want to fix organizations and you drill down to the individual. and Therefore, you need to start with yourself, right? self-reflection. But let's say if you want to build let an organization or if you want to... Um, fix this you talk about different people and other people why would you not focus on them first instead of yourself so why would you not focus on compassion which would be um, the flip side of looking at yourself or do you need to start or do you need to start looking at yourself or is that yeah. another approach to it um i think there's multiple approaches you can take Let's just focus on that, the F word first, fix. Um, I have, a, I have a, a visceral a reaction to that word. And if I've used that word, I'm actually not being true to myself, is that I'm not trying to fix people. Um, I'm trying to help people to see what they can't see and then become better. And you make a great point here, Oscar, and I'll have a go at this one first. My experience will tell me that I became the most effective manager that I'd ever been when I started with myself as the experiment. So compassion for yourself, self-worth, um, 
picking up some rocks and looking under them and seeing some things I didn't like about myself that I continued to blame others for or ignore until I did that work, my effectiveness in being able to get others to head down that same pathway was, was nowhere near as what it, as what it became. Um, so I think that I really do believe that we need to start with ourselves and, and one of the things I have seen happen both in my work today with my clients, but back when I was doing this as an experiment in the workplace is when people see you do it yourself and you're prepared to what I call go first, be vulnerable. I actually think that helps other people to, to step down that pathway of discomfort as well. But uh, interested in your thoughts there, Richard. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of go into the Brené Brown space here with the, the idea of, of sort of co- co- courageous kindness. Um, and you have to look inward first for that because you've actually got to, you know, none, none of us are, are superheroes. We, we all have frailties and fragilities and, and we all make errors and, and you know, we, we are all flawed humans. So prior to being compassionate to anybody else, you have to look inwards and forgive yourself for all of these flaws and failures and, and fragilities. So, so that compassion, if you can't do that, then you're never going to forgive anybody else for them. So you've got to recognize in yourself what is um, complex and fragile, and, and, but also beautiful. Uh, and, and by doing that, you can, you can recognize it in others. So I think that that is the process you have to follow. Uh, in order to do that that kind of work so um and, and i think Brené brown looks at it perhaps in, in one of the more sophisticated ways around yeah yeah look I, look i i totally agree with what you say I, the work starts at itself i also hear what you're saying oscar but my you know to, to know how much more powerful it is when you start doing those things you said richard about compassion for yourself and self-worth and those types of things it makes a big big difference Oh, I have another question for Richard. I'll put you on a hot seat for a few seconds, Richard. The, the, you actually mentioned that you need to forgive yourself. Ooh. Does that imply that we are bad people? No, you're not forgiving yourself necessarily for monstrous acts. You're forgiving yourself for errors and fragilities. Now, because you've made an error, that might be interpreted by someone else as you being a monster because you've done something which you think is quite good, but, but the knock-on effect is harming lots of other people around you. And then you tend to tell a story of yourself as being the hero of this narrative because you've achieved what you were doing. You forget the fact that, you know, 12 different people have been harmed by it in, in various different ways who see you as a monster. It's just the idea that they're, what they're looking for and what they term as good is different from what you're looking for and what you term as good. And it's only when you realise that you've actually caused harm through error or fragility or, or, or too narrow perspective, you have to forgive yourself for the error, not because you were a monster, because the monstrous uh, interpretation was accidental rather than deliberate. I just, want to go, just on that one, yeah, sorry, ahead, just quickly Mark. on that, while, while I think about it, and, and, a, and a very, very strong one for me is this concept of rightness, of being right. And that was something that I had to really come to terms with. That I had a very, very strong view that I was always right. And, and, and to then start to let go of that and, and accept that others may, be, may have more rightness than what I did is one of those things I think that you described there, Richard, which is a very powerful one is accept that others could have a better, a, a different perspective, but a better solution to something, even if they're not 
the most powerful person in the room via the hierarchy or title. So I think it's something to, to be really wary of. And I, w- I would just add a little bit more than that. The chances of any individual having the complete solution are astronomically small. But the chances of a group of people coming up with all the various parts that you can put together in a great solution is, is, is very likely. Uh, and, and the problem, if you think you're right, that can never happen, that exploration of, of the multiplicity of minds to create a, a much better solution than any individual will be potentially capable of. So this, this self-exploration, right, that's your starting point, Mark, um, and, and you mentioned earlier uh, about the human manager experience. Describe me what, that, what I need to, if I hear that word, what, what, what does that mean? So, what you're talking about the human manager experience here now, or so, so what does it mean? It means that it's an experience. So, I, I, I want to I want to put this bit in here. It's not a I, I very very I didn't early on, but I took it away. Is like it's not a program, and I want to go back to this idea of fixing people again. What I, what, I, what I tend to have, I'll tell you, there's about 12 people in the room, no more, each time. And, and people were saying to me, this isn't what we usually do. This was more like an experience than anything else that I've done. And, and I call it an experience because the 12 different people in the room could have 12 very different experiences. And I think this is one of the fundamentals of leadership that, that, that I think we're starting to embrace more is the power of the uniqueness of an individual, even though they may be going through the same frameworks, immunity to change, some of the same processes and things that we do in the in the experience, they'll all have a bit of a different experience of what goes on, a different reaction at different times. You know, we do we do some some really strong work on vulnerability around people sharing what I call a a stop story, the the story of limited self belief. Um, and you can you can just you can feel it in the room, but also observe the, the way different people re- react to that. So my idea here is is the premise of walking into a room with twelve human beings and and knowing that I can't expect that they're all going to react the same way. Some people will get angry. Some people will be in tears, and some people you can see are, are very fearful. But but I think again, this is part of my role in the work I do, and part of leadership today is that we absolutely become laser focused on not just what people are thinking but how they're feeling and and what we can observe in that so the experience is about bringing all of those things out and I get asked all the time at the end you know what were we like as a group how did we compare to the last group and I'm just like I don't compare you to the last group I compare you to you as a human being, and and you need to tell me how you, how you experience it, rather than me tell you what I what I think your experience was. It's interesting. So even the output of all of that, one of the things is how do we measure up against somebody else? So it's this sort of the, the infection of measurement. You can't escape uh, it. <laughs> I think. Look, I think measure. You know what? Uh, measurement is really important. Like I, I, I sometimes wonder whether. I don't talk enough about the, the financial, um, positive financial side of, of going down this pathway. Uh, and I think I should talk about it some more because out of the experiment, I saw some pretty incredible things and continue to see it with my clients. But um, maybe I don't talk about measurement as much because 
the things that I'm working on really set the foundation for the, the traditional measures to get to where they get to. Like I say to people, we don't have a KPI sheet on how many times you're vulnerable this week. But I can tell you, if you show vulnerability and some compassion, empathy, courage, these types of things, um, they all add up into the way that you're seen by others and the way they'll interact with you, connect with you, feel that you are belonging to the group. That then impacts, I think, on, on those numbers. And, and I, I do wonder, as I said, I wonder why I don't talk about that as much as, as I should. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think if you if you KPI vulnerability, I mean, you, you then lose the authenticity of it. Someone goes, "Oh, now's oh. the time to be vulnerable." So you know, I've, I've, I've missed out my new number of vulnerable moments this week. So I've got three to catch up on. So so you've got some challenge. So I don't think I, I just want to talk about the infection of of measurement. Yeah, I think you you framed it beautifully. The output needs to be measured, but the actual experience itself, as soon as you're using the word of experience, I think you're not, measurement starts to infect it and it becomes, oh, I've got to do this and I've got to do that rather than exploring it and emerging and, and, and that kind of adventurous spirit of, of being part of it. I, uh, I just quickly on that, on vulnerability, I, I, I quite often um, remind my clients and anyone who will listen to me that vulnerability is neither a competition nor a KPI. It is it is something that happens. And, and, you know, watching people in a room, someone who, be, someone who tells a very vulnerable stop story, other people in the room, you can see them straight away. They'd sort of sit back and they're like, they mightn't say it, but you can be like, I don't want to go next because my story isn't going to be as powerful as the last story. And I think we've got to get past that. It's, it's we use these human skills to build up to do those other, I guess, the more transactional, numbers that we look look at um the uh, so, so what you mentioned here was is quite interesting about storytelling right within a group um and people seem to compare this and they are kind of you no know, as you said so they they subconsciously measure each other to to one another and you mentioned this as well that that um one thing that you don't actually highlight a lot is, is, is measurement. So how do you explain that to people? Because it's, it's, I, I guess maybe it's natural. I mean, from my perspective, it's probably not a question that people will have. So how, how do you measure it? Um, how do I know I, I feel better? I reckon there's a series of micro moments that build up into something very big here. Um, and, and, and what I try and help people to do is don't rush on to the next thing. Stop in the micro moment, just there, and, and then reflect. I, I talk about the two A's, awareness and adjustment. It's just in that moment. Aware, be aware of, you know, when I woke up this morning and I was like, I can't wait to speak to Richard and Oscar because I like our conversations, stop in the moment and go, what's that all about? Um, I enjoy the conversations. I enjoy the way they challenge me. I enjoy the intellectual stimulation. That's a micro moment for me to go, there's something going on here for me. I'm, I'm, I'm connecting with people that challenge me, but make me feel welcome as well. Versus I wake up this morning and I'm like, I roll over and hit the snooze button. And then I think I've got to face up to those two 
knuckle draggers from Hong Kong today and how the hell am I going to do that? So I think those, what I say to people is be aware of the little moments. You know, when you, when you're interacting with someone, how, this goes back to how you're feeling about that. When you come together with your team, when you're with a client, when you walk into a room for something, there's a feeling in this stuff. We, we talk about culture a lot. I, I have a real challenge around measuring culture versus feeling culture. And I'm a big, it's about how it feels for me. And crazily enough, when I did start this experiment, uh, I will go back and people say, why did you do it? It just felt right. It felt like the right thing to do. Then what I had to see happen was a series of, what were the little micro moments that told me that this experiment was heading in the right path? And then ultimately, the big moments in looking at the, at the measurement, as in the financial measurements, that told me that the behaviour became different. The people, I'm going to say this, the people were happier because they would say that. We actually enjoy, we enjoy coming together as a group and doing good work together. And then we get measured on engagement, which is in the 90s. And then ultimately, I think that impacts on the output of the people and the financial results that you get. But I go back to it. They are micro moments that we've got to stop. We've got to stop in the moment rather than just move on to the next thing. Micro moments. I use that quite a lot, by the way, micro moments. Oh, do you really? <laughs> I may have taken that from you then. <laughs> Oh, no, no, it's actually a, a common uh, term. I don't know, Richard, is the common term. I, uh, it's, it's at least in the marketing, the, the people use this a lot, micro moments. Yeah, it's a common marketing thing, and, and they're the moments, the, the decision-making moments that, that help people yeah. go off in this direction or that direction, uh, et cetera. So one of, that, that sort of last piece, Mark, or the last comment you made, the, there's, there's something in there that you had this internal feeling, this sort of intuition that there was something, you know, you're, you're, there's a, that's a sort of a growth micro moment yourself, although it might have been mm. quite a long micro moment. I just wonder that there's, there's an idea that the spirit of capitalism or the, the you know, that there's no um, imagination anymore. It's gone because we're all so constrained by compliance and risk. Is, is that a way of framing it? You sort of got, there's more here. We can imagine more. There's a, there's a greater spirit in, in the capitalist endeavour and, and I could do something with that and, and I have to do it because I, I can no longer be constrained by all of this. Would that, would that sort of define that, that moment for you, that large micro moment for you? Oh, look, I, I, I think that's a really nice way to, to, to frame it up. Uh, and, and, it, and it was a long period of time. It wasn't like, a, it wasn't three months, six months. This was years of... Um, those moments happening along the way. And, and, and you know, every, everything between um, the sort of relentless optimism as a younger manager that we were going to change this time and it was going to be different. And, and I, I would just, I'd almost na too naive with that stuff and rush in and, and all of a sudden things wouldn't change. And I didn't, I don't think I had built the self-awareness or anything at that stage. And then the brutal realism was that like, this isn't changing. And, I reckon I just, if I, if, I, if I reflect back now and I reflect back to, to when I started playing around with some of this stuff, you know, 15 years ago, the fear of what might happen if someone found out I was doing it drove me away from it and back to the, you know, the usual way of behaving. Whereas as you go on in your life and, you know, you have a few life events, whether it's kids and 
and you start to realize that you you're not spending enough time with family um you're caught up on your mobile phone you're working long hours all of these sorts of things um you have a few other events i've talked to you guys before about you know the strong the strong impact of my father taking his own life um 18 19 years ago and that didn't really come to mind for me when, until I started to think about why I do this work today. And so, so this thing happens over time, mm. but I, I can't stress enough again, it's the series of little moments that build up into something big rather than a, it wasn't just a, an epiphany and a great idea on one day that I should become a better human being. And um, I think sometimes, unfortunately, and even today, this is what, a lot of leadership developments about is give them the sheep dip into this new way of being and new way of working and they'll be okay. Well, they won't because everyone's carrying stuff from, you know, all the way through their career, whether it's a two year, three year, five year, 20 year career. So there's, there's a lot to be said for, for giving people space to do that. So micro steps and micro moments adding up over time to, to create this more complex understanding of, of self and organization and leadership and, and et cetera. So I'm going to I'm going to ask you the nine trillion dollar question now, Mark. Um, if we could create organizations and leaders that with, with this kind of uh, complexity at the center of it, what kind of world would 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 emit from it? Where, you know, where, how wonderful a world could this create? Um, I think a pretty wonderful world. If I often get asked that question around how do you scale what you did? You know, can you do it? 40 people, how do you turn it into 400, 4,000, 40,000? Um, can we do it? I think we can do it, but there's a lot of hard work to be done. Um, what could that world look like? I think it could look like a world where we, where we, where we stop getting romance by, I think we're romanced by complexity. Complexity is alive and well, and, and it's around, and, but we should temper that with how complex is complexity and how much impact are we having as human beings on maybe making things overly complex. And, and, and you know, I, 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 I think about VUCA and, you know, the terminology that, that we run with as human beings, even that in itself creates a level of fear and panic. And even though I want to change, I better go back to doing what I was doing because that's where I feel, I feel safer. And I think what it's going to create for us is a, is a and you used the word before, I think, a, a world of more courageous human beings who are prepared to, with good intention, challenge the system that we work in today, which is decades, if not centuries old, and continues to reward behavior that actually works against our humanity it's about comp it's competing with each other it's competing across business units it's doing all of the things that work against collaboration um so it's almost like you need people you, you like this work that you, you you two are doing you need people to stand up and be prepared to put themselves at risk in order to find the reward at the end of it. I often say to people, what are you prepared to lose individually in order for your organisation to gain? That's a very hard question to answer. Truthfully, um, I'm prepared to lose my rightness in order for us to make progress. I'm prepared to lose my identity, in parts of my identity in some way, 
So it's all of these things, if we can let go of them, which is really hard because they've served us well and they've rewarded us over many, many years, I think we can get to something that's, I'm not going to say we're going to get to a place that's, it shouldn't be all rosy and rose petals being thrown out in front of us. It's like, I want to be in a place where it's a bit scratchy and it's a bit challenging. And every day we go in and we have challenging conversations, but we do them with good intention. And I think if we can get to that place and strip back some of the hierarchy and authority that, uh, that the world will be better, but it's, it's, it's a real challenge to get people to let go of what's rewarded them. I want to loop back now to your, your first answer, Mark, um, where you said you're running an experiment at the moment being in, in Tasmania for a month when your, your business is based in Melbourne, as in to, you yep. know, what, what does a, a flexible work from home kind of experience feel like? Is that part is what you're experiencing now part of what we might experience in, in future ready organizations where where this kind of thriving is is available to everyone i think it's it's absolutely got to be part of it but it's got to be tempered also with the need for human beings to be physically connected as well i i think there's a balance between this so interestingly i put out my monthly newsletter today and I've you know done the, the story on the first two weeks the overwhelming response in return emails from people saying I'm thinking about doing this right now I was just talking to my husband last night we're about to embark on it um, I actually think there's obviously permission granted for some people to start to try this type of thing so I think that's I think that's a good piece but let's not let's not go too far one way I think we still need to have the ability for us three to get in a virtual room or get into a physical room and have the hall pass happening so we can quickly sort through things. Um, but like anything, these are experiments. And this, I guess this is the other thing I missed before with it. What could the world look like? What if we, what if work was started to be seen as a, as a whole raft of experiments? Um, and, and to what you said before too, Oscar, and I really liked it is about stories is, experiments and stories like sharing stories attempting experiments like for me this is an experiment now because what i want to do in in the next three to five is say this is how i want to run my business so i'm going to have a look at this and say how does it work and what worked and what didn't work so i i just consider my business to be i consider my business that i'm in today is an experiment just as my experiment was back in the workplace and and I'll run a series of experiments and I'll get data, gather data from them that will tell me whether or not I can sustain myself this way, whether or not my clients will be prepared to work this way and, and whether or not it helps me to connect with some other things, family and that type of stuff. So I think there's a big, there's a big place for this. What we've got to be careful of is let's not jump crazily and frantically into it all. And let's not forget the legacy activity uh, from pre-COVID that actually worked quite well. And I think sometimes it's a bit of all or none. And, and, I, and I was one of those people. Now I'm thinking it's got to be, you've got to combine things now. So it's living in a state of perpetual beta and living in a state of perpetual hybridity. It's, it's both. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. I like I liked that. Um, I, I like that 
that you had in the, I guess, you know, some things to get me thinking around that. We, I think this is the world we live in now. It's like, you know, I like the way you describe it that way rather than VUCA. I think VUCA is the sort of the way to scare the hell out of people and get them to, to a level of panic where they should step back a bit and go, you know, the hybrid thing. Let's look at it in a bit of a more human way than, than, than it's all turmoil. Sorry, Oscar, I cut you off there. No, that's all right. I'm very intrigued by, by the, 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 how you run experiments, right? So just the way you are trying to be future ready uh, um, is to run those experiments. Um, have you always done that? Um, sort of how, how do you actually run this? Or so, is it just um, for- yeah, so before I was self-aware, Mark, or more self-aware, Mark, the experiments I ran were experiments to make sure that I looked good. So they weren't really experiments. They were directives, I think. Um, maybe even at times me trying to disguise them as experiments, saying things to people, you know, what? how could we do this? What do you think? And I've already made up my mind. Now let's, let's go to today. What I learned from eight years, nine years ago, when I truly sat down and said, the experiment was to answer the, the series of experiments was to answer a question of what would happen if I treated people like human beings. And then starting to look at what, 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 what are the questions I'm trying to answer here? That's when it became really powerful. And that's what I see today as, you know, even this experiment I'm running at the moment, there is a series of questions. I, I put it to my wife, Alison, about August last year, why don't we, why don't we do three months somewhere? And, um, and I remember Al came back to me uh, about October last year and she said, look, why don't we do that Tassie thing you talked about? And then there's a series of questions that, that came up. Um, will I be distracted? Will I do any work? Will we actually be able to work together, not in our home office, but somewhere else when our when other people aren't around, how are we going to go for a month together just doing that sort of thing? Um, can I put my phone down? Um, can I actually do three days a week of work and four days of not work? So all of these things, are we're getting data, we're capturing data now on that. And I just sort of think that that's the way that I live my life today now is, you know, as a, as a series of experiments and, but you've got to sit down and do the work then and say, what questions are you trying to answer? What problems are you trying to solve by doing this experiment? Don't call this an experiment, but really it's just a holiday. Because what I want to be able to do is really live like this at some point in time in the next three to five years. Well, I mean, given, given I have a research background, one of the interesting things here is you've got a hypothesis and I, I, can, I can do this. And then you've got a, a series of or a series of mini hypotheses with questions you want to answer. Uh, and at some point you're going to get to a, these are the results and the results are either this is negatively impacting my my measurements, my core measurements or KPIs as in how much money I'm bringing in, how well we can live, or it's positively impacting them. And then if it's positively impacting them, you can design a whole bunch of more experiments off those positive impacts. And if it's negatively impacting them, then you've got to go go back to the drawing board and redesign your original experiments. The is other that, thing that it might, way? yeah. Absolutely. The other thing that just came to mind as you were talking, and I've been thinking about this and, and still getting out of my corporate brain about, you know, do I have to grow every year? Is how much money do I actually need to sustain? 
And rather than how much do I need to live a great quality of life, it's like how much do I actually need? What am I prepared to lose in order to get more family time, mark time, do some more give back work, whatever it might be. And those questions are coming up as well. And, you know, we've talked about three to five years of, of working like this and then saying, well, then what does it look like then? Does it change to less time? And so I think, I think it's just an ongoing, it's an ongoing experiment, but, but it's just not a, it's not a gimmick because I, I, I can be a gimmicky type, like let's do this, but it's just a gimmick. Um, sugar-coated as an experiment. This is a fair income experiment to see that at 54 in two weeks' time, you know, how long have I got to go? Quite a few years, Mark, I think. Thank you, Oscar. (laughs) (laughs) Going back to the experiment, because there was initial some hesitation, right? You mentioned it took some while to actually say, let's let's do this. Actually, it seems that your wife, she brought this back up. But now you've been running this, let's call it Tasmania experiment. I think that's quite a nice word. Um, what, 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 what did you actually learn from that? What were the emergent ideas and, and, and knowledge? So the, the, one of the ones for me is because I see shiny things, uh, always going past my face is will I become distracted by the shiny things? And so what I'm starting to learn is that, Yes, I will be distracted still by shiny things. Like I've said to Alison a couple of times, hey, they've got that great gelati shop down the road here. Let's just put stuff down now and go for a walk. We need a rest. And it's like, no, that's just a distraction. So I get, I do get distracted still, but at the same time, I think I've been a bit more disciplined than I expected that I would be. Um, in regards to our relationship, um, which I think is a, is, a, is a good, strong relationship. Anyway, I've, I've really enjoyed... Um, getting to understand more about what Alison does. She runs an accountancy practice and, you know, um, she's dealing with a whole lot of things at the moment that it's not just accountancy, it's it's people's livelihoods with things like JobKeeper and the COVID and all that. So my understanding and appreciation of what she does is, is elevated and I was hoping that that would happen. Um, I started to get that in Melbourne. Um, when I was sitting across from her, but then I could walk out of the room. But now we're sort of working in together. I have a greater appreciation of that. And the experiences that we've undertaken in the last two weekends, seeing some of the most, what, two world heritage areas um, in Tasmania, in the the sort of rugged northwest area, um, experiencing those things together, I think, brings us closer together as well. And part of coming here and doing this is, is for us to get ready when our kids who are, you know, one of them living with us, or two, two, one and a half sort of living with us one half of the week, is at some point in time, we've got to get ready to empty nest. And I think this is part of the experiment of a longer game that says one day we're, no, we're not going to have our kids living there with us. So I think we're gathering some data to say, what's it like when it's just me and you? So there's a few things I've learned so far which would tick boxes. Has there been anything so far that that's working maybe against what I expected. Um, I would say no, but I think there will be. The reason I'm saying no, I think there's also a level of, um, what's the word? There's a level of uh, just the magic of what we're doing at the moment that's maybe hiding some of the the dark side, which I think I'll get to. 
Uh, I mean, it's interesting the way you've the way you framed everything is you know you've always made it, you've always done experiments all throughout your life, but in the in the younger mark, it was surface level experiments. How do I change my clothes? How do I change my presentation style? How do I do all of this in order to impress others? Whereas now it's 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 deep level experiments. You're 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 experimenting with self and life and and and, and to an extent because you've you've talked quite a bit about Linsky's adaptive leadership. So that that theoretical approach to leadership. How do I experiment with getting that out there? And and I just wonder if that's a, a progression, a sort of part of maturity, or whether it, it's possible to do at any stage in life. Uh, I think I'm going to say it's part of maturity because that's been my experience. All right. However, what if I had been more mature at an earlier age? Mm. So, have we got the capacity or the capability to? to start to step into that maturity at an earlier age. That's my hope for emerging leaders is that given the sort of work that I do and I know the work that you, you two do is how do we start to help the emerging leaders step more into themselves and, and, and share story of our own experiences to help them to get there. So I, I, have, I do have a hope, back to your question about what can organisations look like, I do have a hope that not only can we start to impact in this with emerging young leaders, but let's take it even further back into, into the education system. I think and that may be a topic for another time, but I actually think there's some real merit in if we could start to impact at that earlier age group, then maybe we don't have that version of me that you described so well, that person that was running pseudo experiments in order to impress others. That would be a great world. Fantastic. Thanks, Mark. I have a final question for you, Mark. Um, you, you, so we talked a little, little bit about the uh, Tasmania experiment. And if you look at, of course, what you learned from that, what can companies learn from the experiment that you are running right now? Um, so first things first, let's go back to when COVID hit and I was convincing everyone and myself of my rightness that virtual work was crazy, was that it's not going to work and I'm going to be back in the room soon. So the first thing we can learn is that we need to be open to the possibility of what might be. Because I, I wasn't Oscar. I was, I was just sitting there going, I'm not going down that pathway. So, so by experimenting, and, and that was driven by fear because of my identity and my ego and all of those types of things. So I think organisations can learn that let's be really, really careful with being caught in how we think the world is and how the world should be um, and be more curious to how it could be. And that's not just, that's not just yourself, but it's like for your own people, for, for how they might do work in the future. They might run Tasmanian experiments and it could work okay. So let's not get transfixed on what's always worked because that, is counterintuitive to adaptation, which is about keeping some things that serve you well, adding some things that'll make you better. And the hardest one, discarding some things that no longer serve you well that may have served you in the past. So I think that would be useful for organisations to be thinking about. Richard, do you have a last question 
before no, we just, wrap it up. Just to say, I've enjoyed every last second of it, Mark. Um, I hope I hope my my questions have helped you think a little bit uh, more deeply in in various aspects of what you're doing as well. Yeah, look, I, I want to say thank you to the both of you. I, I not only this conversation now, but the conversations since when did they? How long's it been since the March, DD kicked off? March. Yeah. So you know, uh, let's say nearly eleven months of um, fantastic conversations. I think that. This is something that people should experience. They, they need to go into situations where they get asked questions that, that challenge them, make them uncomfortable, make them look back at themselves. And I think you, you both do that really well. So I'm, I'm appreciative of getting the opportunity to um, share a bit about what I do and, and have this great convo. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Mark, and thanks a lot, Richards. Thank you.